0: podcast, a show where we talk about books, reading, and culture from the Spartanburg County Public Libraries. I'm Joseph Henderson, the media specialist.
1: I'm Carmenita Turner, the media collection development librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the director of adult services. On today's
2: episode, we're discussing Trust Exercise by Susan Choi and New Waves by Kevin Nawine, two recent works that explore trust, relatability, and perspective, both from the view of the characters and of the reader. Let's get started.
0: So we're going to start by talking about Trust Exercise, the 2019 novel by Susan Choi that begins with a group of teenagers at a, at a private performing arts school, Kappa, um, and centers around Sarah and David two of the two of the students there and uh, their tumultuous romantic, maybe romantic relationship, at least a sexual relationship, an emotionally intense relationship, we could say. Yeah, as um, all
2: relationships amongst teenagers are. Yeah.
0: And the particular ways in which that relationship is tested and ultimately falls apart in the context of of their high school year, uh, and we also meet along the way their incredibly intimidating teacher, Mr. Kingsley, Jim Kingsley, who has a background in the New York theater scene, maybe somewhat avant-garde, who sends them through memorable a memorable series of trust exercises from which the the novel derives its title. Yeah, there's um,
1: situations and exercises that'll be familiar to a lot of art students as even if it's not directly familiar, it's the idea of putting students in interesting positions to elicit a different form of art out of them
0: and to and to get past in some ways the the immediate self-consciousness that arises in in the context of performing in front of others. So the first the first section of the novel, the novel itself is organized into three sections, and we're going to just go ahead and spoil everything about it. First section of the novel centers around these uh, performing arts school kids and their teacher. And the it's second- from
1: the point of view of Sarah, and it reads much, very much like a contemporary YA romance novel, in that it's all about... The intense r- relationship between these two teens and how the rest of the school follows that relationship and how everyone sort of gets wrapped up in it in really interesting
0: ways. Exactly. And the way that the way that it's written too really subordinates every other thing to this relationship. Our sense of time in this first section of the novel is um, is largely reorganized around major events as narrated in the the life and eventual death of this relationship and Sarah's experiences as well days pass quickly but uh when major humiliations occur this is detailed for multiple pages
2: but only when they occur to her
0: precisely yeah everything is organized everything is organized through her perspective which we find out when we get to the second section of the novel is in some ways, a fictionalized character perspective as we are introduced to the narrative voice of Karen, who was a character, and really, we find out, was a composite of a number of characters in the first section of the novel. But she's given a biographical detail and grounding in the first section as Karen Wurzel. The second section of the novel picks up with Karen as an adult in California outside of a, an, a reading and a book signing author event um, at a, sounds like a chain bookstore, where the, the real Sarah is, uh, is reading from her book, uh, which is now a, a popular bestseller. So once we get into the second section of the book, we take this sort of meta, this meta fictional turn. Sarah's narrative or literary authority is undermined as we are reading Karen reading Sarah in some way. And she she revises for us a number of elements about Sarah's story. Most notably, she clarifies the the particular relationship that she had with Sarah. Um, and initially, she puts both of their names in quotations, as if to say these are not real names, and we're never really going to know the real the real names of these um, of these people of these characters. As we see their particular relationships sort of work out through this re through this retelling. We we learn that a, a a sort of pivotal event that happens towards the end of towards the end of Sarah's section, the arrival of uh, of some teachers and students from from another performing arts high school in the UK. We get a we get a clearer view of that story in this second in this second section.
1: Yeah, in part two, we kind of get the same story from two different sides because it's a way of thinking of your own high school experiences and think of if you found out that you were a character in the latest best-selling novel and you go and confront the author and you say that's not what happened and that's sort of what that's exactly what Karen starts doing to Sarah in part two and she's trying to say this is what actually happened and Sarah and other characters are saying no this is how we remember what happened." so we as the reader are left to try and figure out and piece all this together
0: exactly there's this particular literary act that Susan Choi is attempting here that has something to do with the, the mutability of memory the very the varieties of sort of subjective experiences but i think the the other the other work that she's doing pertains pertains in particular to an examination of the particular way that power relationships and sort of differential levels of power and authority inform these interpersonal relationships both across across generations between members of these these particular pairings and and most probably most dramatically and disturbingly between teachers and students, the and
1: I think that's a great segue into the third part, exactly, which is about a new character named Claire. Claire is the daughter of one of the unions and one of these relationships in the first two parts, and things that happen to her and things that she goes through in this third part, and that presents a different element to this story, this continuation of everything that's happened with these characters
0: right and there's a strong there's a very strong indication that claire is claire is the daughter that was given up for adoption by karen that you find out about in the in the second part of the novel which was a sort of pivotal event that led to the basically the break between sarah and karen when they go back to school yes,
2: sarah treats it in the first part of the book that Sarah has Sarah has written this. Treats it as basically done and dusted in the blink of an eye. Her friend went to Europe for the summer. She saw her when she came back. Right. That was pretty much it. But for Karen, it was a traumatic experience, starting with her relationship with Martin and ending with being sent to a Catholic home for unwed mothers. Yeah. Essentially. Basically. And she's taken care of. She's provided for and her baby's taken away and she never sees her again yeah and then she goes back to school
0: and so and so claire's section opens it opens with claire watching video footage of a memorial service for mr lord that we find out is the we have to put parentheses around this or scare quotes around this. The real uh, Jim Kingsley. The the dedication of the arts, uh, the new arts center in his name. That happens after he's dead, right?
2: They announce it, I think, at his funeral. At his funeral. Or That's what it does. Right after he dies because it's something he did not want.
0: Yeah. He's
2: so, very clear about not wanting it.
0: And so and so Claire, Claire is watching. She's watching some of this footage because she is she is interested in potentially finding her biological birth mother
1: yeah because claire's only understanding of her birth mother was that her birth mother was a teenager at this school when she was born and she was given up for adoption and so she goes to the school when she's watching the memorial service it brings up memories of it seems to be a few years prior when she went to the school to try and learn more about her parentage right And then things happened.
0: Yeah. So this is the picture. We have a story built, you could say, like Matryoshka dolls, right? We start on one level, take the first half off, doll in the middle. It's just nesting. nesting. There's something deeper at every level. And in some ways, uh, one of the, or at least in, in one of the ways that I have thought about this book, I've now read it a couple of times. I've thought about the way in which the novel effectively revises itself. What you think you're reading, what you think you're reading is what you are, in fact, reading, but there's more to the story. And the writer with that knowledge is that perhaps, perhaps that initial version of the story wasn't even anywhere close to the truth. Or, you, you take the first part of the story with a grain of salt and then pay, perhaps you take the second part of the story with a grain of salt as well because there's a way, there's a, a performance of a kind of careful control on the part of both Sarah and Karen that, that seems to cause Claire's story to, to perhaps feel like, even though on a smaller scale, another form of revision. It revises Sarah's story in concrete ways because we see, well, not only is Kingsley really this Mr. Lord character, but in in Sarah's telling, Mr. Kingsley is gay. In Claire's telling, he's straight and well, he assaults her when she comes to him before she comes to him to find out more about her birth mother in a way that perhaps that complicates Karen's story, the fact that that wasn't, so that's the overall picture. I think that one of the, I think that one of the questions that you have to consider with this book is to what extent you felt like reading it, to what extent you felt like the this experiment succeeds? the experiment here being this experiment with narrative authority what we think we're reading suddenly is undercut then perhaps it's undercut again is that successful how does that ring to you does it seem to do does it seem to do what the what the book i think is aiming to do which is to Unsettle our notions of truth and authority to suggest that under that under various surfaces there are there are hidden and yet to be uncovered stories of abuse and, and maybe also to say there are the stories that get told and then there are the stories that don't get told. Yeah, right? I
1: think it. I think it was a successful experiment and one of the things that I think can help put it into perspective for our audience and for readers of this book is to think of a vacation that you took with a couple of friends and um, at least a year ago but something a vacation you took a while ago with a few friends now get those friends together and ask everyone about the vacation. Everyone's going to remember different things about it. Every single one of you will tell a story that the rest of you don't remember. And there will be plenty of times where someone will say, I don't think that's at all what happened at the bar that we went to. Or I don't think that's at all what happened with that guy on the river tour. Just things like that are going to come up. Because you're all going to remember yourself as the center of this story. And that's what happens with Sarah. She writes this novelization of her high school life with her experience at the center. And then when Karen is refuting everything in that story, Karen still remembers herself as the center of it. And then Claire's experiences later, again, it's all about Claire being the center of her story. So we always remember ourselves as the center of whatever happened to us. So in that way, I think that was um, something about the book that I felt was very realistic. Yeah, yeah. And very salient.
0: Yeah, so the sort of the, um, that composite, that composite nature of experience, right? Where where there's a shared, there may be a shared event or there's a shared set of events and that may be real and sort of grounded, but there is different interpretation, different different versions of that, different versions of that event that'll play out because of the the particulars, the intensities, the specifics of how how we exist in that event basically. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think I I think I I agree with it that way. I also like I also do wonder though if Choi is pushing us in the direction of not necessarily saying here is a here is a tableau of different interpretations but perhaps here also is that and these interpretations kind of cancel each other out like do they cancel each other out do they actually revise each other so that we have a single narrative or are we meant to hold this like multiplicity in our heads in the end
2: Well, I came to this book much differently than either of you because I already knew the big twist. Sorry about that. That's okay. Joseph read it like a year ago, I guess, roughly. And I, at the time, had no plans to read it. And I personally don't believe in spoilers. Like, if it's the information, it's the information. And I'm fine with knowing it almost every time without fail, except for when I'm watching a new episode of Below Deck. My favorite show on Bravo TV. <laughs> but when when it comes to this book, when you know that the first section is actually a book within a book, it loses, I think, a significant amount of success because you're already expecting this to be... It's all fiction, but it's an even more fictionalized portrayal. And if you are a learned fiction reader and you're aware of both the limitations that fiction provides plus the expansions that fiction provides, you're going to be expecting that maybe not all of it is truthful. So you're prepared for what comes next, which is basically a rebuttal of the supposed truth of the first section.
1: Yeah I, I I can see that because when we are introduced to Karen's story and she confronts Sarah as the author at a bookstore it's written in a way for us that Sarah has written a fictionalized novelization version of her high school years so Sarah wrote it's not told to us as Sarah wrote an autobiography or even a memoir that Sarah just wrote a fiction book with herself as the main character based on based loosely on her, based on her relationships, but we sort of get an idea that Sarah went into it as a fiction and other people that Karen confronts also saw it as a fiction and are really surprised by how much Karen is caring, (laughs) how much Karen is caring about all the inaccuracies in it. And at one point she confronts David and David is just like, eh, it's whatever. Yeah. He's very indifferent to the book. Right.
0: I guess the thing, the thing that, is raised in in relation to this this discussion of narrative authority and spoilers and i don't know knowing the knowing the sort of metafictional dimension of the book in advance and maybe even not knowing that and feeling conflicted once you get to that second section is well, of course you're reading a novel, right? Like You were always reading. You were a always novel. reading. A novel. <laughs> you were always reading a novel. You have always been reading fiction. Right. But what is it? What is it and what does it say about us as readers that we would have an expectation otherwise? <laughs> and that That's so... and and that Choi would get us to like uh, think about that, that there would be a little bit of friction around that.
1: That's so funny because You're right. The whole time we're reading a novel, none of this happened.
0: Right. So we get to
1: Karen's part and we're like, what really happened? None of it. Like, it's a total fiction novel. None of this stuff happened. Right. Or did it happen? Because we get, we start to, is that part of our story experience where we see everything happen? We can say that none
2: of it happened because in reality, none of it did. It's fictional. Mm -hmm. But when we read a fiction novel, we are reading it. For the relatability of it, I guess, in a way. And part of that is the way in which Susan Choi uses narration. And I thought that was actually done very well. There's a distinctive voice in each of the three sections. You really do feel like you're reading a trashy young adult romance in the first section. Yeah. That maybe is like, not the best written thing on the face of the planet but an editor somewhere said this is going to make me a lot of money so they pushed it through right the second section feels much more loose and almost stream of consciousness we're getting everything from Karen's perspective and she's kind of bobbing weaving through her memory but the biggest difference there too is that the first section is third person narrator which we are taught from the beginning of everything that we read fiction or not That is a trustworthy voice. Right. Whereas in the second section, we're told from Karen's point of view, I, Karen, this is my experience, that that is a less reliable and trustworthy perspective. And then Claire's section goes back to being third person, omniscient narrator. Mm -hmm. So we're taught through all of the nonfiction that we read in school as children and Even things like boxcar children, the saddle club for myself, it's all told from that third-person perspective. So you can kind of rely on it to be true in some way. And then as you get older, you start to be introduced primarily through fiction and through autobiographies and memoirs to the first-person narration. But we still kind of accept that as true. What we're starting or what we've seen roughly in the last decade and a half to two decades is that that's being broken down pretty significantly in terms of reliable narration, which we discussed in an earlier episode about Gone Girl and My Sister the Serial Killer. When you bring that first person perspective and that first person narration into a story, that's when we're given that cue as a reader to say, oh, I don't know if I trust this. Whereas Susan Choi is able to take that narration and say, this was third-person omniscient. You thought you could trust it. Turns out you can't. And I thought that was probably the smartest move in this book was the way that the narration was structured.
0: Yeah, because it it performs in some ways on a on a formalistic level. It performs a version of the thematic concern with what is truth, whose stories can you believe, etc., it makes that a it makes that a different matter of sort of narrative concern. And it opens the question too as to whether or not whether or not we move we move from stages of unreliability to a greater sense of reliability at the end or if it's unreliable all the way down (laughs) it's just like different (laughs) different versions of of this um of this kind of unreliability i don't know maybe that's more of a problem just in my own head
1: no i agree because it's all it's all part of it where we have these certain perspective when we're reading a book when we read a book we feel like this is what happened this is the story this happened and then We're introduced to Karen it's like oh no this didn't happen and then it's like oh well what happened with Karen and then we're introduced to Claire and it's like oh that didn't happen either (laughs) and so it's one of those things where I feel like I think that's sort of why this won the National Book Award because so often it's easy to read a book and be critical or questioning of why it was nominated for big awards or why it won a big award and this is a book that It's going to be a book that makes you think and sits uneasy with people because it goes against all the literary traditions that Jess outlined for us. It goes against all of that and presents a narrative in a way that doesn't fit any other narratives that we've read before. Like we don't, we can't trust any of it really. (laughs) It's its own trust exercise. (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
0: that is back
2: and forth at you and saying what's true. What's not.
0: What's true. What's not. Yeah.
2: Well, and alternate way to look at this book like the fun house mirror version it's not we think this is true and then it turns out it's not and we think this is true and it turns out that's not either is to say this is true and also this is true right and also this is true because when you center yourself in your story i mean the three of us are all going to remember this podcast lately differently mm-hmm. right we're going to remember most importantly the the points that we each made and the points (laughs) that we stood up for, (laughs) which is how every episode is going to go. (laughs) But when we walk out of here, we will all have three different stories about this podcast and they're all true because we're looking at them through the lens of our own experience. So for Sarah, her story was true for Karen. Her story was true and for Claire, her story was true and that does not mean that they're necessarily You can't. You have to pick one and
1: not the other two. Right. They can all. You can catch them all. (laughs) So what? So then it becomes a debate for people that read this book: is all of it true, or is none of it true? Yeah. Right. Or is it somewhere in between the two?
0: Well, so, so from that from that point of view, or from that particular point, I think the I think one direction you could go in is to say that. This is a novel that forces us to consider more aspects of consent than, than the one than, than simply the question of consent over what someone can or cannot do to me. in this case, consent around the idea of a shared story. Did this thing happen? the way I remember it.
2: Right, and like, who gets to tell that story? Who
0: gets to tell that? Some sort of, but this like idea, there, there's a, so there's almost the, there's the surface level reading of how this novel is forcing us to think about questions related to consent that feel very contemporary. They feel, I, one of the pieces of criticism I often saw about this novel was that it's a novel, uh, you know, it's a me too novel, Right. And that, that is absolutely a part of the story. But there's a, another way in which this matter of, of consent as a form of shared agreement is actually being performed by the book. And I would say, and I think this goes to the award, the question of awards and criticism as well, it becomes the work of readers talking about the book where essentially you read the book, another person reads the book or you read the book and you like really encourage other people to read the book. And then uh, so that you can have a conversation about it to get the story straight. Yes. That's the big thing that I've
2: seen when, when my friends have talked about it online or even in person, when we had the book discussion about it last week, (laughs) the first step that we took was trying to sort out what actually happened in the first place.
0: What happens? How do the different parts connect to one another? how far can you potentially go
2: the with endless that? question was who is claire's father and yeah. we it's unresolved and yeah. but we as humans are have the nature of wanting to know and wanting to have clarity about so many things and this book leaves you with very little clarity about most of it
0: right but it gives you this but what's so interesting about it is it is it gives you this structure for thinking about these questions on a number of different levels and it also is like this like it's a scaffolding from which you can basically build the picture with other people, but you but you have to have other people read it so you can talk about it because otherwise it's just this it's this internal thing where maybe you have some doubts about the relationship between the things or you might even feel like eh, I don't know I mean I see what she's doing but. I but my my individual personal take on this isn't going to matter as much as the collective larger take
2: so if you need someone to talk about it with we're here Three of <laughs> us. feel free to email us our address for book lovers is on our book lovers website bookloverspodcast.squarespace.com. sure is. <laughs> Hit us up, but we're here and we'll listen to you and your arguments because we've listened to each other in our arguments yeah. about this. Book. Did
0: you read Trust Exercise? Do you have a hot take? <laughs> we um, want to hear about it. Claire's father. And we we want to hear it. We actually want to hear it. We actually do. I'd be interested. Nope. Oh, siren is, time.
1: When I was reading about, so I read a little bit of critical stuff for this book. Um, when I read a book, I try not to read too much about what happened, not because. I'm against spoilers. I kind of view them the way Jess does. They don't bother me. But I feel like a lot of times when we read about what a book is about, too much is revealed. And I like to go into it with as little information about the synopsis as possible. So I read a little bit about this. And what I saw about it was that it kept showing up as a great book club book this is a great book club book. They was on all of these top 10 book club lists and every book's top 10 books that your book club needs to read and from all these different publications across different interests. And I was trying to, so I went into this book with that in mind. And of course we're talking about it essentially for our virtual book club. Right. (laughs) And this book club of three as well as everyone that listens to this. Um, And just trying to see what makes this a book club book. And I agree, like, this is one of those books where at first I was not really feeling it as a great book club type book. But I can see because there are so many things that you're just left unknown. And we kind of experience the story the way the characters do, where we experience it. And it's our own experience that impacts how we read it and what we take away from it.
2: Right. Book club books tend to be not necessarily likable titles. and. Yeah. That's, for me, essential to a book club book is not whether it's likable or not, but whether it's discussable or not. And Trust Exercise is extremely discussable because so much is left unsaid, unconfirmed, absolute confusion surrounding a number of different aspects of the plot. And for for trust exercise in particular, there are a lot of different opinions about whether people like the book or not based on the type of reading that they may do based on the type of the type of reading that you're presented with in the first section, which is young adult romance essentially. And that is going to kind of flavor your perspective going through. So, for our book discussion, I thought it was extremely discussable and not everyone agreed about anything. I no. don't think, I don't think no. there was any overall agreement about any aspect of this book. And that sometimes can be the best thing. And it's not, it's really not about whether people like it or not. It's about what there is to actually talk about.
0: So if you were, if you were to try to, to, recommend this book to to a reader without going into the greater detail that we have here without necessarily even getting too deep into the into the weeds of the the tricks that it plays on you is this a book that is this a book that would appeal more to i don't know readers of um psychological thrillers readers of uh readers in genres that tend to have a fair number of unreliable narrators where that's like a familiar thing and a and a pleasurable thing or would you go more in the direction of um you know your let's say the more sort of staid, like literary fiction readers
2: there is a genre in particular called psychological fiction and it's not thriller, it's fiction. So it's really delving into the minds of the people who are in the story and not necessarily from the aspect of there's been a murder. <laughs> <laughs> someone is chasing after someone else. There is some. There is no undercurrent of fear in some way to engage the reader in that perspective. But there are a number of psychological fiction books. So for readers of that genre in particular, um, I think of a, a Friend of the Family is a good one that I read a while ago. That's just pure psychological fiction. I would call a lot of dysfunctional family books, psychological fiction as well. This is where I leave you is certainly a big one. Most of Zadie Smith's books as well. And if you're interested in those books in particular, this is definitely a good one because it delves into the psychology of trust and the psychology of understanding and also the psychology of grief pretty well. Yeah,
0: it definitely does. And I think that, um, I think that Karen's story, in particular, bears uh, some explicit marks of therapy-type language um, and a certain kind of psychological self-awareness, where she narrates her experience in a way of, in is sort of demonstrably distancing herself from her emotions and her immediate reactions to to various experiences. And that that particular depth of of character and the way that Choi handles that, I thought was particularly well done. It was interesting. It was very interesting to read. Even if it did challenge my sense of who this character was and how I had a sense of, you know, how I how I got my bearings in Reading her and reading reading her story. So so shifting now to to talk about New Waves, which is a a brand new novel just out. What last March? month? March? Oh, a couple yes. months ago. What
2: it's is very time now? Though? What is time what is now? Time? Indeed? What is time? Yeah, um, it came out in March right before the library closed. And yeah. Kevin Newine's book tour was actually canceled because of. Coronavirus pandemic.
0: Pause.
1: <laughs> what <in the> <laughs> a deep voice that? that siren. Siren has a hoarse throat. <laughs> no way.
0: Get a lozenge. Okay.
2: So, New Waves is a story of Lucas and Margot. And Lucas is a young man who works in customer service. At a tech company called Nimbus, which is this enormous messaging service that has 200 million people under its purview. And his best friend Margot is one of the engineers at Nimbus, and she's clearly highly talented, very intelligent and not taken seriously in any manner because she's a black woman working in tech. And Lucas, meanwhile on the customer service floor is basically completely unseen as an Asian man working in customer service. And the two of them actually strike up a friendship when they're much younger online. And they are both members of a music piracy site called pork. (laughs) And they start, trading music, essentially. They're able to find the music that the other person wants, and they strike up a friendship based on that, and they kind of lose touch on pork, but somehow their paths re-cross at Nimbus, and they become friends based on that. And Margot and Lucas are both frustrated in their own ways with how the world sees them, Um, but Lucas is a little bit more... I guess, willing to acquiesce with the stereotypes of Asian men in the world, whereas Margot is deeply frustrated, as she should be, about being a black woman in the world and how she's treated. And Margot is a heavy drinker. Lucas also drinks. And one night, very late, Margot stumbles out into the road and she's hit by a car and killed. And Lucas is left to try and figure out how to grieve in this this new world that is so much different than the way any of us have grieved in the past, which is a world with things like Nimbus and Facebook and social media and one of the f- the first ways he's approached to kind of deal with Margot's death beyond her funeral is that he's asked by Margot's mother to find a way to get rid of her Facebook profile because Margot's mother <laughs> is addicted to Farmville. <laughs> And she goes on to Facebook every day to water her crops, take care of her farm, and she doesn't want to see Margot's profile every day when she goes on there. So Lucas has to figure that out, and ultimately he steals Margot's laptop from Margot's old room and kind of starts digging into it a little bit and finds out that Margot had a whole online presence that he never knew about. He finds out that she is a member of a forum called Fantastic Planet, which is about science fiction writing, and she has a long and deep relationship or friendship via direct message with another member, who is asking where she is. And he sees that Margot has gotten a number of direct messages from this person since Margot's death, and so he decides to respond and say this isn't Margot. And through that, he meets Jill, who is a science fiction writer, and the two of them stumble their way through new waves of grief, essentially is where the title comes from. And they're trying to just figure out how to navigate this world of grieving with social media and with tech and the ways in which we as a community treated Margo while she was alive. And they're trying to reconcile the Margos that each of them knew. Lucas knew a very frustrated, deeply upset, somewhat troubled Margot, while Jill knew a Margot who was always happy and saw so much possibility in the world. And the two of them really struggle to combine those two Margos into one person. There's something that we don't really think about when we think about social media, which is the end of our relationship with it. And whatever that may look like. Is it deleting your account? Is it that you die and someone else has to figure out how to do that for you? What that looks like in this world. What are we leaving behind on the internet that lives past who we are? And New Waves really delves into this. Because part of the reason why Lucas has such a hard time grieving, I think, is because he is constantly reminded... Of Margot in so many different ways. There's Facebook. He has her laptop. He's reading her DMs. He's listening to music that she recommended to him all the way back in the pork days. He has a a large external hard drive with hundreds of shorts, short stories, and flash fiction that Margot has recorded, probably while drunk that are sh- these very, very short stories of science fiction that we get in the book. And that in a way, let will save it for later, but in a way relates to trust exercise in part because Karen is trying to move past to this life that she had before. Kind of, you know, grieve it, release it, move on from it, but she can't because of Sarah's books or Sarah's book that she writes. And so there's this kind of the way that the past pulls us into what it is that I find very interesting and unexplored in other books from this very millennial perspective of what tech is like today.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think that one of the things that Nguyen does so well in his novel is he dramatizes the way that our relationships with people can exceed the, simply merely material dimension of those relationships with physical people. They are just as much relationships with our information, with data, with the, and with the, the sort of the virtual exchange that is, that's part of communication and part of social media and other, other forms of connective technology that, You know these these relationships it's not to say that one is true and one is a sort of pale imitation of of that but instead it's to say well no these are all relationships then they have they have a certain amount of depth and and they have a certain kind of possibility there's a there's a different possibility that emerges in in the context of these virtual conversations and
2: and doesn't that sound familiar to trust exercise? Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Carmenita, what did you think of New Waves?
1: I really liked the analog versus the digital as far as personalization because throughout it, Lucas is grieving by looking at all of these constant reminders of Margot and her digital life. But then at, they worked at the same place together, but they didn't work in the same department. They didn't work on the same floor even. But he talks about how one day one of the bosses just cleared Margot's desk. And so that's when Margot stopped existing for the work. And everyone, because her desk is empty, there's not that reminder of Margot's not at her desk. It's now a reminder that desk is just empty. And so there's a lot of scenes where the office is able to move on from Margot's passing and Margot's death and they're able to adjust where there there's one point where I think the number is 16 and the boss says oh um, Lucas you have to do this um, team building exercise with us we're going to do it all together we have the perfect number of people we have 16 people so that's why we need you to be two teams that are even numbers and Lucas just says well it used to be 17 because the office has already moved on because that analog Physical reminder of Margot isn't there, whereas there's these constant digital reminders of her. Right. And
2: for Margot, if she had still been alive, would have felt herself as the 17th person, as yes. a black woman in tech in particular. Yeah.
0: And there's just something really, really true about that discrepancy between Lucas's experience and the experience of everyone else in the office, that anyone who's experienced any measure of, of grief can understand in that it is deeply personal and incredibly internal and can be profoundly isolating. And that seems to be, on one level, how we are presented with Lucas's story until we're introduced to Jill and the story shifts in a really interesting way because suddenly... They're grieving Margot respectively differently, but they're doing it together.
1: Because to Lucas, he knew Margot in digital life, and then he knew her in real life, and then he came to know more of her digital life. But for Jill, Margot only exists. In the, the digital world, she doesn't know anything about Margot's real life. She's never met Margot. She doesn't even know Margot's race. She doesn't know where Margot lives. She doesn't lives. know her real name. She doesn't know her real name. She knows her as afronaut 3000. Yeah. And there's a point where Jill and Lucas are able to meet because they live in the same area. And Margot, um, Jill, learns that she and Margot never lived more than a couple of miles away from each other in their entire digital friendship. And, um, so, for her, when Margot stopped responding to the messages, it's just like any other time when people stop using a website. I mean, we all have stories of people whose accounts just didn't show up in our algorithm on our news feeds anymore, or people that were our online friends that they just stopped using that service. We don't know what happened to them. Right, Maybe they died. But maybe they just decided that that app wasn't working for them anymore. Yeah. And so she so that's another way of the physical and the analog versus the digital, because Lucas had the analog and the digital friendship with Margot, whereas Jill only had the digital friendship.
2: Right. They're for all intents and purposes, grieving two different people. Yeah, essentially, based on what Margot portrayed to each of them.
1: And it's fun to think about that. Our own, I was able to very easily connect with these characters. And um, it's easy to think like of how people would see me as a professional, how my friends see me just as a person. And then how people that follow me on social media see me. Because I feel like while those are all me, they're all different facets of me. And there's right. parts of my job that will never make it onto my social media. And yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then there's parts of things that I talk about on social media that will never be a part of my job. And it's just, those are both me. That's They're both the full spectrum of who I am as a person, but how they're presented to the world are so different. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think that I think that one of the things that we see in this novel is this sense that of social media being drawn even more even more narrowly than merely the sort of public facing profile because we see how we see interactions within these within these different particular communities one of the things i really liked about this book is how overstuffed i felt it was it felt like a book that was trying to do a lot of different things and in that regard, maybe this is uh, maybe this is indicative of the fact that it's a first novel. Maybe you don't get a chance to write another novel. So if you're gonna do it, put it all in there. Get it all right? out there. Because we have we have uh, we do have this central set of stories around Margot and how Lucas and Jill are grieving her. But then we also have this story of, and I can't remember the name of the company, you said it earlier, and it's just gone out of my mind. Nimbus. Nimbus. Well, Nimbus and, then Phantom. Yeah, yeah. Nimbus and Phantom. Phantom is the text messaging company. Yes, Yes. The
2: disappearing messages
0: company. Boy. All the all of the bits of the story that pertain to Phantom had the potential to be extremely dark and troubling and yet they s- they seem to resolve themselves in just the best like comic <laughs> way um so phantom is a is a tech company similar to i guess you would say probably the closest analog would be Snapchat um yeah. or some features of Instagram like the stories where Um, those are are meant to disappear after a period of time. So
1: with Phantom, it's a text messaging software that people can use. I don't know if it's really an app. It seems that the book takes place about 2010. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's more just a software rather than what we see as apps now in 2020. But it's a software that people can use to send messages, text messages specifically that disappear almost immediately.
2: And the CEO, Brandon, has this idea that it's going to be used for these very lofty goals, for whistleblowers to be able to report their superiors
1: for problems. And and plot twists, that's not what happens. Big no, surprise. No, of course not. Teens they, find a way it to use it to the harass other one. Direction. Another. Yeah. Yeah. Get, there's a very <laughs> funny exchange of talking about, like the comedy that you were talking about, where it could have been very dark, very intense, lofty goals, but it just becomes kind of funny in a very human kind of way where teens start using it and say very very teenager type things to each other right teen bullying becomes a big part of it because at the beginning of phantom because of brandon's goals they weren't moderating anything on it people could just post and say anything but then teens start using it to bully each other because it disappears so there's no proof that they did it so the web the company starts moderating users and then we find out that there are people that are using the platform to communicate with their various affairs so that becomes a plot point of how people are using this software so
2: day one of the internet the internet exists day two one person gets on it day three two people get on it day four is when you add the moderator (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what i that's how i feel that the history of the internet has basically yes. gone because as soon as you incorporate more than one person there's going to be a problem that someone else is going to have to moderate which is something i have some experience doing and this New Waves goes into some of the minutiae of content moderation, which has to be one of the most thankless jobs on the face of the planet. And it's become much more extensive now within even the last four to five years because Facebook has content moderators now. Reddit has an enormous unpaid, I don't want to call it servitude, but it's like it's a voluntary unpaid job basically to moderate on Reddit and at least for Facebook, they're being paid. But Instagram has moderators. There's content moderation across any social media platform that you can think of. And the amount of material that is removed from those is absolutely vast. So what phantom is attempting to do is actually very tip of the iceberg. And of course, as soon as you figure out a way to successfully moderate something, which for them is text, other people start just sending links to photos of things that are really inappropriate.
0: Right. Yeah. There's a, and and even in the darker shades of the story that could have gone even bleaker, we have the creation uh, and training of a moderation team at Phantom and the various implementation of rules around what, what is moderated where It's clear that their role, their role with respect to the developers for the company, let's say, uh, is as this like permanent underclass, even though they are the ones that make the nice and shiny surface appearance of the, of the platform possible. Right. Um, Which if you followed any stories around Facebook, Content moderation, in particular, in a in the context of the United States or in a global context, you know that these material conditions absolutely exist, and they are uh, deplorable working conditions. And um, I think
2: one thousand percent,
1: and I, and that's very accurately portrayed here because when they start moderating things, this team of people, it starts to grow very, very large under Lucas. But the rest of the the engineers and the other people that are at the top of the chain of command for this platform hate that it has to be moderated. They don't like the moderators. They look down on them. And they're trying to replace all the human moderators with an algorithm. Because even from the beginning, they saw the people that were moderating as non-essential staff that were essentially useless. So it's a thankless job even here in these terrible conditions where they don't have enough desks and they don't have enough support. And it just keeps growing without anyone caring about it. Even though everyone agrees that they're necessary, they're not treated as
0: necessary. Disposable and yet essential. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hmm, disposable and yet essential workers. Wow. What a <laughs> timely what, what a timely, timely
2: time
1: yeah. to talk about that. <laughs> And I think that um, another thing that's pretty timely of it is that all these Facebook, all these social medias that we have now started with pretty great goals. Like Facebook was started as a way for you to connect with peers, especially on college campuses, and with people you hadn't talked to in a while. And look at what it's turned into. Yeah, yeah it, it didn't. It wasn't created for a way for people. Yeah, it wasn't created for people to fight with their uncle about noose or, that about, wasn't or
0: about stealing your bluetooth headphones
1: <laughs> yeah that yeah. wasn't the lofty goals of it and next door was started as a way to get to know your neighbors and it's become a way of people just being really cruel to their neighbors right
0: <laughs> i saw a tweet last night about next door that i felt was really true it was from the writer <laughs> and critic molly lambert she said that next door is just shirley jackson's the lottery for the internet
2: ah <laughs> that's perfect <laughs> it's deeply accurate and it's such a problem with social media that when you say something like facebook or Nextdoor, door people's first reaction is yes that site it's never it's not like oh facebook yeah i had a good experience on there like i I don't know. I deleted my Facebook account in 2013. I want to say it's been a long time, but before that I couldn't, I couldn't have told you the, for like the last positive experience I'd had on Facebook. It's just an infinite scroll of frustration. Essentially, and that's what Next Door is. But you live with all these people, <laughs> which is a little bit scarier, maybe.
1: And then Margot and Lucas had lofty goals for what they wanted the Internet to be. Yes. Even with their music pirating days, they didn't see themselves as stealing music. They saw themselves as preserving music. Right. Because, they again, it's the analog versus the digital. There's so much music that only exists in an analog context. And so they saw themselves as these pioneers of music preservation by uploading this obscure music so that more people could listen to it and it could be around forever.
2: Right, and then you get into the questions of access and who has access to it. Yep. And Margot could access certain music in New York that Lucas couldn't when he was living in Oregon where he grew up.
0: And now these, these questions of... Music piracy, music access. I mean, this is a again, this is a very up to the minute novel in a way, because conversations around what is available on on streaming services recurs again and again, whether we are talking about major, you know, world-conquering artists like Beyoncé or Jay-Z or popular but considerably more obscure artists like say King Crimson or
2: John Darniel.
0: John Darniel or Mm -hmm. tool let's say right these are artists whose discographies were not available in a streaming context but now but now are Um, so it's a it's an ongoing it's an ongoing debate and it's an open question as to when or whether or not some of those materials may not be available at at some point, um, or perhaps get them
2: now while you can. Yeah. Is kind of the idea.
0: Exactly. Right. But this book makes it possible for you to think about that. And it also makes it possible for you to think about, to think about the internet and the experience of the internet as something with, as something with a history, which is often not how it is thought about. It's certainly not how the, developers and others who are largely in charge of it necessarily want us to think about. <laughs> um, right.
2: They they say they don't want to think about the girl the the investors don't want to think about the girlfriend that they have. They want to think about the girlfriend they can have next. Right. Right. That's one of the one of the great lines from this book, <laughs> which is he Kevin Dewine has such sharp writing and there's can I read this one little excerpt? Go for it. See if you can guess the game that he is talking about. This is on page 183 for anyone reading along at home. (laughs) It was a puzzle game. There was a grid of brightly colored blocks on closer inspection, different kinds of candy that needed to be rearranged and matched in threes. Simple in concept, but challenging in execution. Jill let me play. She was on level 67. I asked how many levels there were, and she shrugged, like the game could go on infinitely, and it wouldn't matter to her. The game was both maddening and satisfying, a kind of perfect alchemy of pleasing colors and sound effects, masking an underlying system built to exploit the most addictive tendencies of the human brain. It was genius. What game? (laughs)
0: crushing that candy yeah
2: (laughs) it's candy crush and it's so impressive that like in one tiny paragraph he is able to describe everything that has made candy crush such an incredibly obsessive game and such a money maker for its developers
1: and its investors
0: did either of you ever get into candy crush
1: no no a little bit i guess but only in the way of not in the, not, I got into it to play it, to see what it was about, you but get, not in the way that. You didn't get that,
0: deep, you didn't spend any money on it?
1: Not in the way that I spend money on Animal Crossing.
2: <laughs> I am not a sweets person, so I never played Candy Crush, but I do like shiny things, so I did play Bejeweled.
0: Bejeweled. <laughs> yeah.
2: Which is really essentially Candy Crush, but with um, diamonds and rubies as yeah, opposed yeah. to candy. How
0: about Farmville? Either one of you?
2: No. Yeah, never no, for I Farmville. Didn't, Farmville,
0: Stardew Valley. On the other hand, <laughs> yeah.
2: Farmville was particularly something that I could never get into because my parents have an actual farm. <laughs> so oh, I thought
0: why play the virtual version? Why play
2: the virtual version when I am stuck helping them with their real life version? You, you know the long.
0: actual drudgery of this.
2: Yeah, I do. I know people are like just help me in Farmville. I need to muck out my stables. <laughs>
0: <No>. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no. I if, did that this morning. Yeah,
2: if you ever want to do it in real life, let me know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Come on down. I need a break.
2: You got you a pitchfork and a shovel right here <laughs> and a bucket, and you're ready to go.
0: Yeah. So, so we have the grief relationship cluster of stories. We have all of this interesting writing, fictional writing that feels lived in and researched about the internet. And we also have... Margo's stories presented as uh, wave files, which I appreciate it, <laughs> uh, because they're because they're dictated. Um, she's she's recording them as audio recordings and and Lucas is going back and, and listening to them while well, really Lucas and Jill both are, are listening to them um, and
1: transcribing them and transcribing yeah. them. Right. So they're right. taking the digital and making it analog. Yeah. Lucas's yeah. goal is to make that into a publishable book.
2: Mm-hmm. Margo's stories.
0: And we have these things, we have all of these different things playing off of one another. You know, to what extent, to what extent every part of it holds together as this, like, perfect technical, technically organized novel. I don't know that I, I don't know that I know or could necessarily assess it. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel as, like, constructed with the same kind of intention as trust exercise does because of the the particular ways in which those stories are meant to play off of one another um but but i wouldn't i wouldn't fault new waves for that in fact i i enjoyed all of those looser somewhat looser elements playing off of each other because it it gives you this sense of a world and it gives you a deeper texture to these characters in in Margot's case who cannot be logically present for the, for the activity of yeah. the story. Yeah. And it and puts us in their position of losing her and grieving that loss in a way.
1: Sure, it's much fuller. Right. And in Trust Exercise, each narrator is sure that they are telling the truth. Whereas in New Waves, Jill and Lucas don't know what the truth of who Margot is. They're so it's, open to the idea that they're their individual perspectives of Margot are incomplete. Yes, because the only person that can tell us who Margot is, is Margot, and she has died. So she can't... That she has. (laughs) She can't confirm or deny anything about herself. I think that's sort of one of the ways that the stylization is different, but also similar and connected.
0: Yeah, they share... It's clear that both of these books share a thematic interest in questions of, questions of truth and its relationship to fiction or fiction as a, as a mode of accessing a deeper truth about the world or about relationships or about uh, something like a kind of lived emotional context or whatever we might say. But it seems that Susan Choi's conception of, of, some sort of composite truth is much different than Kevin DeWine's. There's a I think that there is a there's a pronounced anxiety around this necessary revision, this partiality, let's say, or or composite nature of truth, that doesn't seem to doesn't seem to trouble the characters in Nawine's story in quite the same way or we might not come away with the same sense of trouble where we we're feeling like as readers or as critics or as perhaps members of a book club we actually have to all get together and kind of sort out what's real here you know we we take it as given this is what we have it does feel partial it does feel fragmentary and that's just what life is you know, that's what it is to know people now. And that's what it is to maybe have friends online that you never know in real life, but they're your friends online. And you just accept that. You accept that partiality and you're okay with it. So so it seems like even though there is that shared that shared interest, thematic interest in truth and fiction, I appreciated the different ways that these writers seem to come down on that question and how uh, how our experience of that can be potentially unsettling, but towards a kind of recapture and clarification on Susan Choi's part and and how it can feel just very, honestly, up to the moment, you know, uh, in in Kevin Nawine's part. I mean, one of the things that novels do well is, you know, they can capture some sense of how we live now. And and I think New Waves, I think New Waves really does that well. Yeah.
1: And that's another um, difference is that, when I think one of the reasons that New Waves captures how we live now is because that's its goal. Its goal is sort of to capture our digital experiences, whereas trust exercise takes place in the mid 80s for the majority of it. Yeah,
0: pre-digital, and, pre-internet world. Yeah.
1: And so even when the internet is introduced in trust exercise, it's introduced in a very afterthought kind of way.
0: Yeah, it's only it's only substantially significant in the final in the final section of the novel. I mean the internet was around in the eighties, but it was largely a it was a project of hobbyists and it was a project of defense contractors and other things, not teens. Right. right?
2: What's interesting? To me, as we point out, New Waves feels very modern. It feels very fresh. But it's written today, but from a perspective of 2011. Yes. (laughs) Which, honestly, when we're looking at the internet, was a much different place, actually. And yet it still manages to feel very relevant to right now. Because we can still see the traces of disappearing messages like phantom with something like snapchat where your photos disappear. But do they ever really disappear? No. Just like with phantom, <laughs> so the messages don't ever really disappear because they have to moderate them.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I, an idea is just coming to me as we're talking about this, that even in the context of Nawine's novel, some of the some of the per- particular perspective that he has, then that he narrates about internet technology, might seem to some readers and perhaps to readers a little further down the line, dated, in a way.
2: Yes, most likely
0: because because of the um, the online communities, the sort of forum based, more distributed form of of internet connection that was not maybe funneled exclusively through like four or five major platforms that that reality is in which we all find ourselves here in 2020 that's not exactly present in the same way in in his book
1: and it's 2010 internet was still full of a lot of hope (laughs)
0: Yes.
2: Yeah, and now it isn't there
1: anymore. No. Yeah, we're just very, very jaded and frustrated by it now. Whereas there was, a, even now if a website starts to, if a software starts an app, they know it's going to be contaminated of sorts and they know it's going to be used for bullying and for <laughs> salacious affairs and regardless of what their goals are so they know that moderation has to be a part of it that everything has to be kept whereas 2010 we had snapchat that just said oh no we don't keep anything everything is temporary and now it's like no no everything's permanent
2: (laughs) right 2011 was the very early days of facebook opening to the general public
0: oh yeah that's true
2: as opposed to being specific to college students. And then eventually I think it went to high school students and then it opened to the general public. So the, the point of Facebook at that time was really just starting to pivot from a student based and really educationally tethered platform. Like you had to be going to a school or you had to have, you had to have a Wofford email address or something like that in order to be on that website to opening it up to anyone with a Gmail account or Yahoo account or whatever it may be. So this was well before the time of, I mean, this was where the 2011 very, very early days of Instagram as well. And now it's owned by Facebook and it's like a bazillion dollar business to be on Instagram for some people. And so the, The internet looked different then, and that meant that our relationship with it looked so much different then. And it's much more pervasive now to the point where Lucas is able to get away in the book with having a flip phone. He could not. Today, as a member of a tech company, he would be given a phone and said, this is your business phone. You are going to use this. He would be required to, most likely in order to be accessible at any time whereas he didn't check he couldn't see emails on his phone his boss's options were to call him or text him over the weekend so the our relationship with the internet and how pervasive it's become in our lives is so much different than it is in 2011 in new waves but it doesn't feel like reading it now, it feels like this is a relationship that some people have with the internet even now. Minus the flip phone thing. Right. People yeah. are still addicted to things like Candy Crush.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, there's a there's an interesting way in which um in which you could see it I think you could see it as dated or you could see it even um in some ways, as utopian, you know, in that nostalgic... The benevolent internet. Yeah, in that, <laughs> yeah. like, nostalgic way of going back to, hey, remember when it really was, actually, about connection? Oh. Um, which I maintain is, is true. There was that time, or there are those... There were those pockets of There still are. There still I are, too. I
2: think you have to find them in very specific places, though, now. Yeah.
0: But it. But at the same time, the I think the general... This general sense of... A tech company clearly run by someone who has failed to think about the larger implications of um, the larger implications of what they're doing, uh, the larger implications of the problems of connection. It's not a good idea that, um, you know, people can can talk to each other and their messages can disappear, you know, that that could have larger scale uh, consequences to it. That feels relevant. That feels present. Um, and if you've ever watched, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg give any sort of uh, testimony any about sort of the, robot testimony, yeah, <laughs> about the um, about the grand visions and designs, uh, utopian designs behind Facebook. It's clearly that's a person who's never really thought about the implications of connection no. uh, another, for once in his life. There's another
1: issue I just thought of about it. So, Phantom is sort of moving where the internet sort of was going towards with things being more temporary. And we learn more we learn about Margot through the several years worth of messages. So Lucas is able to just scroll back through years and years and years of his of Margot's messages with Jill. Whereas now that wouldn't really be super feasible. Even with Facebook Messenger, for example, I there it hits a point where it just stops loading. Old messages, and so I'll try to find something that I showed my friend two weeks ago and I'll scroll through it and it's it's hard to keep scrolling through it. I can control I can do a, a search in our conversation and find it it's still there, but it doesn't display the way these things displayed for Lucas. So it kind of is like new waves is at the when the internet started to change in a lot of ways
2: and everything is so piecemeal now like the likelihood that you're just talking to your friend on facebook man facebook messenger is very slim joseph and i sometimes have two ongoing conversations at the same time and one is through iMessage and one is through instagram oh yes it happens (laughs) it does happen me and, and it my will friend be will be happen happening each other. simultaneously yeah. mm-hmm. so the likelihood that you're just talking to one person on one individual platform and there's no other way as like your your master master conversation history it doesn't exist anymore the way that it used to when people would just email back and forth or dm back and forth on a forum it exists in different places in
1: different ways now
0: yeah it's much more distributed
1: it's an interesting kind of nostalgia that New Waves and Trust Exercise have. Yeah. Nostalgia for 2010-2011 internet, nostalgia for high school relationships. The right. 80s. The 80s, <laughs> the 80s in, in general. general. The 80s, sense. yeah.
2: There actually isn't a whole lot of the 80s and Trust Exercise I didn't feel. However, I say that as someone who was not alive for part of the 80s and was very a wee one during the rest of it. <laughs> so I'm not as aware of the the signals of the 1980s that there may have been in Susan Choi's writing or at least in Sarah's story. Now there was one thing that one of our one of our very astute book lovers members mentioned, which was that Sarah's signature jeans that she wore that had the the embroidery Like tapestry almost on her pants that made her recognizable by David in the dark during one of their teacher's trust exercises.
1: Mm
0: Yeah, I don't know if those were made by Guess or Jordache or which one of those, which one of those companies, but we could probably safely assume that they were pretty high-waisted.
1: Yeah, almost definitely. I think that's the thing of reading nostalgia like the 80s and compared to watching it. Whereas if we were watching this book, if we were watching Trust Exercises as a TV show, it would the look. The fashion, <laughs> the hair, the music playing in the background of the really pivotal scenes. It would
2: look. You could say Sarah is wearing a pair of jeans. It's much different mm-hmm. to actually see it, mm-hmm. though.
0: Yeah. Would you watch a trust exercise show slash movie? Hmm. I'm going to go on record and say I would.
2: I know you would. Yeah. I guess we could say here at the end of our conversation, you liked it. It did much more than I think either of us did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. think we both like new waves a lot more than you did. Maybe. No,
0: I no. no, I really liked that book. Really yeah. Liked it. I really okay. enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: So trust exercise was a little bit more divisive between the three of us. Yeah. I would probably watch like an episode and see how it goes mm. and just check it off my list. Uh-huh. Or more likely than not let's be honest with what's really going to happen i'll read the vulture recaps
0: uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> <You> c- <commit laughs> which is what i've done that. with normal people <laughs> oh, <Yeah. laughs> I see I see yeah, okay.
1: Read the Wikipedia article for
0: it so so
1: that 's what, what I would do. I would read the wikipedia that's my thing I'll ah. read, I read the Wikipedias
0: <laughs> okay our different when, our different relationships to media
1: when a movie comes out and I know it's a movie where i don't want to sit there for two and a half hours and watch it. But I want to know what's going to happen. I will be at 1130 the night it comes out. Refreshing Wikipedia, waiting for that full plot summary. Yeah. What that's happens? What happens in this What happened in this mess? That's what I do with every single Avengers MCU movie. Hey. Uh, I usually don't even them. have to do that. It just kind of
2: permeates my brain somehow. Usually I hear someone else talking about it. <laughs> I'm uh-huh. just like, well, Somebody. that's what happened And it's again, there.
1: it's like you're saying with... Now our internet identities are so segmented because then Margot went to one website for everything. When Lucas opens up her computer and types in FA to go to Facebook, it doesn't pull up, Facebook as the autofill. It pulls up what was the website called Fantastic Planet. So it pulls up Fantastic Planet, Mm implying that is where Margot went the most. It is where she spent all of her time. He can see the hours and hours that she spent every day on that website. Whereas now that's not really how we get in information or how we engage with people. We'll go to for just like with this conversation now, Vulture, Wikipedia, watching it watching the television which would definitely be on a streaming platform not on cable. So, right. watching it there. Where do you go for your news? Some people go to CNN, but then there are other people who go to Reddit
2: or Al Jazeera or Twitter, and that's where they get their news. It's so much more segmented now.
0: It's segmented and yet aspects of the aspects of internet experience are still so or they are now so heavily mediated by massive platforms. Yes. So one thing YouTube, that I think is Facebook, really common Twitter, et cetera.
1: People will mm-hmm. say, Oh, I don't use Facebook. I only use Instagram. There's the same thing. <laughs> They're the owned by the same company. One is owned by the other. <laughs> <laughs> so even yeah. when we think we're being super segmented and being super broad, we're actually not. We're still I'm, It's just the illusion of segmentation, maybe. Well, there's functionality there that's a bit different with Facebook versus Instagram because one is
2: really photo-based, original content, quote unquote, not really. But at (laughs) least when I see someone post, if it's something, some mad rant about politics or something, it's much easier to just scroll by and there's a photo attached to it. So I can at least see a picture. (laughs) (laughs) I like all my things to have color pictures with them. Although I'll do black and white too. That's cool. Yeah. That black and white aesthetic. <laughs> that black and white aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> but there's still a need, I think, for for the vast majority of people who use the internet, and that's something we definitely see with Lucas, Angel, and, and Margot. There's a need to find a community on the internet with which you can relate. And I think that's something that all three of us can do or can attest to having done yeah. at some point. Yeah. If not even now, um, with Instagram, even you'll have hashtags and you may develop a friendship based on that. Facebook, certainly you have groups and messenger and all of that. I don't know what else is on there, but, um, with Reddit, you have all of the subreddits that are related to specific topics. Twitter has its hashtags, all of that. So there's still a necessity there to create something community related that people are really drawn to.
1: And that's what it was for Margot and Lucas, too, because yes. Margot felt completely isolated at her job. She felt she couldn't be herself because she was too she was constantly thinking about how she would be perceived in board meetings, which I think that anybody right. as that is a minority or part of a marginalized group can understand where when Margot spoke at meetings, she felt like they were viewing her as This is what all black people think.
2: Right. The voice of an entire race. Yes. Which then black people aren't a monolith. Yeah.
1: So she was facing that. And then she was also facing, if she didn't agree with something, she talked about the angry black woman stereotype that she was so anxious about falling into. And justifiably so, because that is one of the things that causes a lot of professional conflict for her, is people seeing her as being that. Um, And so she goes on the internet and through jill's conversations with jill she finds that niche for science fiction um and we're also talking about 2010 where compared to now when we've talked about science fiction on previous episodes it wasn't a very diverse place even worse now like margot now would be able to see herself in nk Jemison, but nk Jemison wasn't as well known 10 years ago even though she was writing she wasn't the celebrity that she is now so margot went wasn't seeing herself even in science fiction but she could be a part of her science fiction community with this anonymous avatar and find her people essentially
0: oh that's right i um I wonder if just as as a gesture towards closing if we could talk about i don't know talk about how we might recommend new waves to uh to a prospective reader uh, beyond just you know giving this kind of descriptive and and critical account i mean and i can i can start this off because i i find myself reading a lot of books about the internet and around the internet uh now and maybe just since i started working here um both nonfiction and and fiction that that takes it as a as a subject in some ways i mean i think that a reader of uh, Sarah Pinsker's wonderful last book, uh, a song for a new day, which is in some ways, a, a science fiction critique of, um, of, of certain aspects of, of internet life would probably find some enjoyment in this book. Um, but I also think that it would potentially be enjoyed by, uh, readers of, you know, relatively recent nonfiction about life, uh, on the internet and around the internet, like, um, Gia Tolentino's book Trick Mirror uh, which came out last year to much acclaim uh, I really enjoyed and uh, Joanne McNeil's sort of social history of the idea of the user on the internet which is called Lurking uh, which is a book that I, I would recommend to anyone that, that <laughs> also feels like us this kind of nostalgic uh, pull of uh, internet's past and its, um, its possibility
1: I would think about it as a book for people that really like reading stories of friendship because it's about Jill and Lucas figuring out who Margot was. And often when we have a story or a book where we can describe it as, oh, you find out who your friend really was, usually they're a murderer or something like that. There's a very dark, sinister element to it. But to this, it's just, there's no dark, sinister element to Margot's life that we see. She was just a person who just had a very normal life in a lot of ways a very mundane life. And this is just the different parts of it. So it's I would be like if you for people that really like stories where you like friendships and you want to know more about it. And the way I promoted it to some friends of mine was how well do you really know your friends?
0: Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Jess, what do you have? Any any recommendation engine um, thoughts?
2: I mean I I think it can also be good for people who are dealing with their own form of grief. Certainly. Sure. Especially in a time like now, if we have someone who comes up and says, Man, I just had to delete my brother's Facebook account or yeah. something like that. This would yeah. be a good book for them to help kind of guide them and say this is this is a way to handle that. Yeah, this grief is in the digital p- present Process it. Yeah. Um that the moment when Lucas tries to figure out how to delete Margot's Facebook profile is very moving, I think and actually directly quotes Facebook's information about removing a loved one's profile after their death, at least as of 2019. They may have edited, edited it since then, but I think that being able to see something like that in a book is really rare right now, and to be able to when you're grieving or when you're going through a grieving process like that, to be able to see that someone fictionally has dealt with that and see how it plays out in their lives can be really beneficial because that's not something that people are going to talk about openly.
0: No, I think that's right. And I think, and I think really drawing, drawing all three of these sets of recommendations together really suggests the, what I see as a very wide appeal. Yeah. Um absolutely. with with this novel in particular. I, I think that the appeal for for trust exercise is wide in a certain way, but um but it, it it just from looking at the Goodreads alone and just from going through our experience of talking about it in the context of a of a book discussion group, um, you know, it tends to be divisive. I don't know that New Waves necessarily would be quite so Quite so uh, divided in uh, in the responses that it engenders.
2: I don't think so because it doesn't pose a question of who is correct. Yeah. Whereas yeah, trust exercise right. does. And it forces you to make a determination of your own of who is correct in order to find peace with that book. Whereas you don't have to with New Waves because Lucas and Jill are aware that they can both be correct.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And
2: I think this is the perfect way to end. Joseph, you talked about the internet and the, aspects of the internet and new waves is an important thing to think about carmenia you talked about the friendship i talked about the grief that doesn't mean any of us are wrong about it (laughs) it just means that we as readers have all looked at and taken away different things from it
0: this is what we brought to it and this is what stands out to us now after having talked about it for a bit
2: and that doesn't mean that any one of us is more right or more wrong about the book it's just that we all saw different parts of it because we're looking at it through the lens of our own experience
1: and again shoot us an email about yeah. what you thought and what your takeaway Yeah, if you have hot, hot new take. waves takes We'd love as to well, hear that. Let's go. Absolutely. Let's <laughs> Check go. out our
2: website.
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Book Lovers podcast. Uh, we really enjoyed discussing these books and hope that you all enjoyed listening to our to our discussion uh if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more uh, please subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher google podcast wherever you wherever you get your podcasts and tell tell a friend about the show if you think they'd be interested Um,
2: online or not
0: online or
1: anywhere and tell your friends to read the books there you go yeah also a good idea pass
0: those books on (laughs)
1: So we can get all those hot takes. Exactly.
0: Yeah. More The more takes, the better. All right. Thanks again for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye.